Okay, well, welcome. Welcome to the Christian and technology, pursuing Christ in the digital day. Nobody is less qualified to speak about this than me, than I, huh? Maybe Jeff Campbell. I got another hand back there from Richard. Julie, okay. I did learn this week that um, I am not a digital native. Neither you, Matt. Digital natives were born after 1980. Every note I have from seminary was written in pencil. Most of it has faded at this point, unfortunately. Hopefully not from my brain, but, but uh, certainly on, on, on the notebook. Susie recalls those papers being printed out at 2, 3 in the morning on a date dot matrix printer back in the day. Ring, 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 five feet from her head. And uh, anyway, I have two kids who are digital natives. Some of you are, and if I need to be corrected in any of this, you come up and talk to me, okay? Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, what a joy it is this morning again to gather together with your people. It's a constant reminder that you are doing your work in this world. You are building your church. Lord, we preach a message that is the wisdom of God, but it is foolish to men and it was foolish to us until you opened our eyes to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. And Lord, we delight now to cling to that gospel with all that we have. We rejoice that you have called us into fellowship with you and with one another. And Lord, um, your truth is timeless. Your train is moving forward. There is no stopping it. There is nothing that technology can do to alter its course. Lord, your plan is from everlasting to everlasting. Your purposes cannot be thwarted. And so we rejoice today again to gather to worship you, to give you praise, to be taught and to learn and to um, practice the one another's. Lord, help us to put on that great love of Christ, which is the perfect bond of unity. Thank you for these dear people that you have surrounded each of us with. Help us to build one another up and do the things that uh, edify, that we might be encouraged as we continue down this, this road, how we anticipate your coming, and we pray, Lord, come soon. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well... Let me begin, as I said, with a disclaimer. This is an area where I am naturally uncomfortable. I uh, dislike most things digital and technological. Would probably be too. That <laughs> would be understating the fact. Uh, I, I have a, a revulsion in some ways, and I look at it and I go, you know, that's not good, and I know that's not good. Um, I know that's not good for a number of reasons, but I am very concerned and remain concerned about the impact of digital media and where it is leading us ultimately. There are those, though, who have thought about this, Christian thinkers who've thought about this much more deeply, and they have helped me a bunch, a load, um, to think about this topic. And apart from 
some blogs, most of which you'll hear this morning, was developed really from these four books, three of them written by the same author. Tony Ranke has written a book entitled God, Technology, and the Christian Life. He also wrote a book, I think this was the first one, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. He wrote another book, which we read here as men, called Competing Spectacles. The cross of Christ and all that God is doing in redemption is the most glorious spectacle ever to be put on display. But there are other things competing for our attention, aren't there? And the world is a competing spectacle. And most of that in our day and age is transmitted through digital media. And therefore, rightly, he calls us to to think about how we might better see the spectacle of the cross which doesn't come to us the way the world's gold and glitter comes to us, does it? It's not flashy. Um, So you might want to think about reading one of those books. The other book is one written by Tim Challies entitled The Next Story, Faith, Friends, Family, and the Digital World. Uh, In some ways, this sweeps up much of what Ranke has said into one volume, and I would really encourage you to, to read any of those. There are many, many others, and maybe you've read a book on technology and, and the Christian life, and um, you would share that with us, share that with me, so that we, we still might grow in this respect. <clears throat> I realize in coming to this, we're going to spend two weeks on it, I realize in coming to this, we, we come to this like we come to anything else in the Christian life. We have a tendency to want to get down to business and all the practical questions. Let's just dive into how we're going to deal with pornography. Let's just deal with how we're going to, we're going to resolve this. i got this issue with my kids. We go on vacation, and I'm there with eight other people because every one of them has their own phone, and they're all on it. What do I do? Those are all good questions. They're all questions that, that believers face. But we really need to begin, just as we need to begin with the Bible, by thinking about things at the level of of scripture and and to try and provide a theology of technology um, so that we have a context from which to answer those questions. You think about the way Paul writes his epistles. He always begins with the indicative, doesn't he? He doesn't begin with what to do. He begins with what has been done for you in Christ. And then he says somewhere in his letter, therefore, and he begins to play out the practical application of the gospel. Well, so it is today. We want to provide a context in which to deal with the challenging issues that come along with living in a digital age. Next week, we'll look at both the benefits and temptations of technology and begin to discuss how we might best utilize those various technologies in our pursuit of Christ in this life. So why study this topic? Well, I would answer that in a number of ways. Number one, it's obvious that we need to. Um, The question confronts each of us, doesn't it? Who's serving whom when it comes to technology and and to what end? I would guess if I had a 
if I were a fly on the wall, maybe it's better to speak technologically of a drone up above our heads as we're in worship today, I would guess that we might find many people who are utilizing their phone um, for their Bible. Perhaps some would be checking up on the pastor to see if that Greek word really means what he said that Greek word means, right? Why are you smiling back there? Lots of people, they're always, I'm always being checked up on. There's accountability in that, I suppose. However, I think that drone would probably also see that there would be somebody checking their Facebook page in the middle of the worship of God. There would be some who are tept, tempted to, to, to check that last text as, as the phone buzzed. There might even be some uh, who, who would be plugged into their digital pastor listening to a real sermon while the guy up front is preaching in this church. We think about it from a family vantage point. You know, the digital media can be used, a phone can be used, can't it, to share conveniently an address where we're all going to get together for dinner. But who hasn't been here in, at a restaurant and seen families not talking to one another, not dealing with what's right in front of their nose, the people that God has actually placed in their life, but they're living vicariously with friendships that are nowhere near that dinner table. And so the family disintegrates. We can think of young men who use the word of, or the, the, the phone or their, their screens for, as a tool to study the word of God, or they might be immersed endlessly in, in video games and lulled into living some sort of vicarious life in a virtual reality. They're unmotivated. They are uh, irresponsible in their Lives. We can think of young women who send texts for the purpose of encouraging one another in the church or young women who devote endless hours to social media suffering really what we read all around us, right? Deep unhappiness, uh, suicide rates are up. There's a lot of tragedy that comes along with modern media and the way that it tempts us to serve and stand in the mirror of self. We can use media to build relationship. We can use media to insulate us from relationship. And as I said, we can live out there instead of right here. And so that's one thing for certain that, that we, it's just obvious that we need to engage this as believers. We also realize that technology is a part of this world. It's not going away, I wish, at times. We, we were reminiscing as we're prone to do. And Solomon says, right, it's not good to live in yesterday. The one who says the earlier days were better, that's, it's not wise. It's the same problems and the same people and everything's got its upsides and its downs. But I do remember the day when life was lived just as you encountered it physically wherever you were. Those were good days in their own way. And it's not that we need to go back there, but I think uh, as I've talked with people, everybody recognizes a desire to have deeper and more meaningful relationships. And we need to have a biblical view of technology if we're gonna fulfill what God has called us to in this life.
This world is changing very rapidly. There's rapid advances all the time, particularly in the digital realm. And if you're an individual living in this world, or particularly if you're a parent in this world, you just feel like you can't keep up. How am I going to insulate my kids from certain challenges? Or am I just going to go along with a stream? Um, we, we all know how much easier it is to let your kids be entertained by some form of media than it is to discipline them and teach them to live. <laughs> and that's a really dangerous proposition. But many in our world, perhaps most, are going that direction. We as the church should, should see that differently. It's not wrong to use things that way. We've all done it, whether they're playing with blocks or, or watching uh, a movie. Um, we know that, that there's advantage. I don't, I don't want to be over the top on all of these things. And if you feel like I am being that, I don't want to be that. Actually, that was really the motivation for why we considered technology for a 12-week men's study was because I needed help, you see. I needed help in trying to view these things rightly and not just demean all of the technological advances in which we live. That's a foolish way to think anyway when you think about it. When, when I need surgery and they can do that laparoscopically rather than cutting, I'm really thankful for technology. When it's 104 degrees out, I'm really thankful that I have a car with an air conditioner that works and I'm not riding in the back of a buggy, right? A wagon across Utah, stuck in the mud. But we'd be living with our heads in the sand if we didn't think that technology has a profound effect upon one's pursuit of Christ, either for good or for evil. The argument in World War II for moving women into the factories was to win the war and to defeat Hitler. And women being out of the home, men being over there. When men come home and now ladies are used to working and there's all kinds of technological development by means of uh, washing machines. Uh, you can buy your bread now in the store rather than baking bread at home. There was a, a, a massive shift with the industrialization of the universe, of the world, particularly of the United States, the argument was that, that by moving into the factory, we will double our income, and therefore we'll be able to afford, what, twice as much. And all of those things that used to take someone in the home to do now can be done by machinery. But we're all down the road here 60, 70 years, and we, we understand this, that what happened with women going into the workplace and, and all of these modern machines to take care of those menial tasks, seemingly, that used to require so much time, effort, and energy, that now there'll be so much more time. But the lie of all of that's been exposed, hasn't it? Now you're responsible, ladies, in this world for home and for all that goes on in the workplace, and it, 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 and that the promise of a double income 
didn't really deliver because economically we understand this. When there's more discretionary cash, what happens to the price of everything? It just doubles. And now you're trying to live on a, some of us, <laughs> on a single income, and, and, and it's just really, really, really challenging. So an advance in technology always presents us with new challenges, and we need to learn to question it and not just follow along. We need to be able to help our children navigate this ever-changing landscape. So the question is this. There, there are two camps, and, and I want you just in your own mind, and maybe, maybe by a show of hands, that would actually be better. I'd like to see it. There are two camps when it comes to technology. There are those generally that tend to be dystopian. What does that word mean? It's the opposite of utopian. The dystopian is sort of a technophobe. You have a more pessimistic attitude toward technology. Renke says this, quote, Mankind is unified in the rejection of God. This is the thinking of a technophobe or a dystopian person. Mankind is unified in the rejection of God and in a technological evolution that God cannot stop or he chooses not to stop until he eventually stops in and burns the whole thing to the ground. How many of you are dystopian <laughs> leaning when it comes to technology? Oh, I'm in the minority here. Okay, well, that's good. You lean towards a strict separation. You just don't want it. You don't want your phone. You'd rather chuck it in a lake and be done with it all. The others of you then who did not raise your hand are utopian perhaps. You want to be a, you're a, you're a technophile. You, you love things, technology. You have a more optimistic outlook. Again, Renke says the technophile envisions this world where, quote, human and machine blend together in a single existence, moving toward a heavenly utopia where machine and man exist forever. Ugh. <laughs> I could hear the sigh from up front. The question is, is there another position? And I hope there is. And I would call that the discerning Christian position. We need to guard ourselves, frankly, against both extremes. That somehow we, we look at, at technology for digital deliverance. Technology is our savior. And we, we need to reject that position of digital defilement, that everything digital is necessarily bad, is necessarily anti-God, is necessarily leading us to sin and defilement. And like I said, I, I think people do tend one way or the other. It's a continuum scale. But the argument that these men are making that I want to make is that we need to be thinking people. We need to be discerning people. We need to be wise people who possess a thoroughly Christian worldview. The discerning Christian will think this thing through. And we will bring the Bible as our lens for looking at these things so that we can live effectively and by faith in every circumstance in life. And so, let's start with a brief definition. What is technology? 
It comes from the Greek root techni, which means art or skill or craft. That's the word we derive technique from. And logos, the word for word or knowledge or body of science. So this is then the application, if you will, of knowledge and techniques and tools to adapt to or to control the physical environments and the material resources that satisfy our wants and needs. Now, that's a dictionary definition. I'm going to give it to you again. The application of knowledge, techniques, and tools to adapt and control our physical environment. You live down in, in, in Texas. You're just super thankful that you have an air conditioner, that's technological, and it controls the environment so you're not baking when it's hot. It's, it's these kinds of things that control our physical environment and material resources so as to satisfy our wants and our needs. Tim Challies put it this way, technology is the creative activity of using tools to shape God's creation for practical purposes. That's a good definition. It's the creative activity of using tools to shape God's creation for practical purposes. Ranke simply said this, it's a household name. Technology is merely a household name for all the tools that we wield. He says the central storyline of human innovation follows how we discover more potent power sources concentrate them, store them, and deploy them in the demonstrations of greater and greater power. Again, think about the microchip and how much can be stored in the palm of your hand, right? What's in here used to take up rooms at NASA. You used to have to hire massive staff to try and do these kinds of things. And now it happens almost instantaneously and very quickly, and everybody has this link to these great, powerful, concentrated, potent means of accomplishing things. That's what Ranke says. He says, we amplify our power through new techniques. And man has always done that. The invention of the wheel, what did that do? It advanced man's power to accomplish things. The fulcrum. We can move the world, right? If we had a fulcrum big enough and a place to put it and a, and a bar strong enough, we, we, could, we could move things. Now, God's word says it'll never be tottered, so you can give it up. You don't have to think about it. But, but uh, you get the idea. And Ranke, in thinking through this, says basically there are four types of technology and they have been building and progressing. Here they are. The first was animate technology. A horse and a carriage, that's where we get the word horsepower, right? That was the animal in your barnyard. Then he said inanimate technology, like the family minivan, like the internal combustion engine. Machinery began to to harness power. 
And then he said there's semi-autonomous power. We, we can think of a Tesla that is a self-driving car. It still requires some input. It doesn't just do it on its own most of the time. But, but they're, they're engaging and they are, they're delivering uh, greater effectiveness. All of our cars today, if you have one after, you know, probably 19, I don't know what, but has, has a computer in it that runs things. You have auto on your air conditioning in your car. It knows what the temp is in there. It knows how to bring it up or to take it down, and you don't even think about it. And then he says, we're, we're looking at a day ahead where there is going to be autonomous power, and I think he wrote this before anybody even came up with the initials AI, but we're moving in that direction, and we hear a lot about it, don't we? So that's what technology is. It's a tool to harness power, to work effectively in the world that God has given to us. So let's begin to build out a theology of technology. We tend, says Challies, rightfully, to be experience rich and theology poor. We, we know what it is to experience technology, but none of us think much or very biblically about it. We just sort of inherit it and we, we take it on uh, without thinking. Somehow my printer, let's see, what happened here? Yeah, technology. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. That's exactly right. Messed it up, but I'm, I, I think I figured it out. Here, <laughs> technology. Here we go. Here's a key question that Ranky, Ranky rises this, and it's good. He says, in Christ, we celebrate the material world, like freshly brewed coffee, blossoming fruit trees, hot bread, soft butter, and warm honey, nature, gardens, and sunshine, and play, and laughter are all gifts to be enjoyed. He says, so too are dances and weddings and married sex. Here's the question. But should we also celebrate the smartphone, the microprocessor, the nuclear core? If it plugs into the electrical grid, can we celebrate it? It's a good question. And I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. We can and we should celebrate technological advancement. Yep, that just came out of my mouth. <laughs> I think the answer is yes. Technology is a good gift and it is a good gift of God. And that's got to be a shift in our thinking. We tend to think that technology is the result of man's intelligence. Technology is the result of the ingenuity of super intelligent, godless people. In fact, that's one of the points he makes in his book is that much of technology, we should expect that it would come from the godless. Why? Anybody want to take a stab? Why would we think that a lot of technological development, perhaps the majority of it, would come from godless people? Mary, you muttered something before you started drinking your coffee. What'd you say? Oh, yeah, they're looking for a savior, aren't they? Technology, if you're, if you're a techno dude, how fat is your wallet? Pretty fat. Money is a major motivation. For, for people to develop technology. 
there's a lot of reasons uh, I think that, that, that Ranky is right about that. But here's what we need to anchor down, and that is that technology is a good gift, and it is a good gift from God who works through technophiles to develop these things. So let's see if we can't sort of develop in the half hour that remains a, a mini theology of technology, shall we? Let's start here. There is one true creator, and we are not him. Mankind is not him. You are not him. Think about it. Men cannot create from scratch. We often say that a woman bakes a delicious cake from scratch, but we don't really mean that. <laughs> we mean that she didn't open the box of Betty Crocker and pour it into the bowl, mix it up, and bake it. We mean that she's taken flour and chocolate and whatever else and combined it into this bowl, but she did start with ingredients, right? God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. And we really could spend the rest of the day and maybe the rest of the week just contemplating what that means and being gobsmacked by the reality that God creates something out of nothing. You remember that glorious first-rate movie, The Sound of Music, where that nun, Maria, sings that song, Nothing Comes from Nothing. Nothing ever could. Somewhere in my life and childhood, I must have done something good. It's really lousy theology, even for a nun. But <laughs> something does come from nothing. In fact, she would be better to sing, almost everything comes from nothing, as only God could. He exists, and he has existed eternally, but <laughs> everything else, every thing else came from nothing. Ranke says this, and I love it. He says, nothing is not God's raw material. God had no raw material. Stephen Charnock, a theologian, says this, quote, a greater distance cannot be imagined than the distance between nothing and something. That which had no beginning and that which has being. Sorry, that which has no being and that which has being. And a greater power cannot be imagined than that which brings something out of nothing. Here's the point for us. How do we fit into this thing technologically? What, as creators, how do we fit in? Well, it's simply this, we're plagiarists. We are people who are imitating God. How was the plane invented? Well, you say Orville and Wilbur Wright. You'd be right to some degree. 
Well, we can trace that back, can't we? How did they begin to envision flight? Where did that idea come from? They had to see something in flight. I wonder if it would have ever occurred to men. I wonder how much even now just sort of passes us by and we don't get it. How many times in your life have you said, I can't even imagine life without <laughs> birds? Boy, woke up this morning and I, I had a rude awakening. I went out and got my coffee and I look out and here is this cat with its tail twitching under our bird feeder <laughs> with one wing out of its mouth. <laughs> yeah, well... What are you going to do? Cats have got to eat too. We can copy. We can mix and match. We can add. We can subtract. But the bottom line is we're given the ingredients with which to play and the boundaries within which we can play. And birds stimulate, I, again, I, I just, I get so caught up in it, but it, it makes me marvel that God, God, again, with the stuff we just accept, how fearfully and wonderfully made are we? That God gave us hundreds, thousands of taste buds, these receptors that can discern the flavor of, of pineapple and and, and the texture of Haagen-Dazs and the, the wonder of a cup of coffee. That we have eyes that see in color. He could have just made the world in black and white. Just go back to the 50s. No one owns a black and white TV anymore. Why? Because it's just so much better in color. Who thought of color? Uh, sex really ought to be avoided, and for the most part, uh, married people only, for sure, but only in marriage even. When children are needed and, and desired, but there shouldn't really be much by way of pleasure in this thing. And so is the teaching of the church for thousands of years. Ridiculous. Here is the God who invented sex. Here is the God who created an act that, that cannot even be engaged in apart from pleasure. Don't be silly. God is amazing. And God has, has created all of these things and we take them in and we come up with HDTV and we think we've really arrived at something and we just go, what? God did that from the get-go. He's been three-dimensional. We can't even figure out what that is. Maybe he's four-dimensional. I've heard arguments. But you see, we, we start figuring out the physics of things, and what are we doing? We're just uncovering the laws that God has established in this world, and therefore we know, don't we, that when you create the shape of that wing, whatever that thing is called because I never took physics, but you know that, that, that as you push that plane down the runway at a certain pace, eventually there will be lift. And we praise God for that. It'd be a real messy deal if sometimes there was lift and other times, well, not so much. That is an inviolable law, right? The laws of physics, they're all God's. We're just uncovering what he has done. And so there is this really what, what amounts to an inevitable progress along God's guide rails of possibility. You think about it. We started with spoken language. And, and then there were hieroglyphics. And that gave way to an alphabet. And, 
and then to writing, and then to books, and then to a printing press, and then to libraries, and then to the telegraph, and then telephones, and then texting, and now vlogging, and one idea simply builds upon the next. It, 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 is, it is not that anybody ever comes up with technological developments out of the blue. And we need to let that humble our pride so number one, there's one true creator, and it's God alone. Number two, we only discover what God has infused into creation, and we've been building on this. We imitate and we utilize the powers that God has given us in the created order. We're, we're like a kid, and I love this illustration that Ranky gives. He says, we're like a kid given a five billion piece Lego set. In fact, it's fascinating, but he traces it all back to say that the fundamental technology is farming. And you go, what? But he says, think about it. If you don't have food, then everybody's got to be a farmer. But as farms began to technologically develop and you could grow more than you needed and now these plots went from a little plot at your house to the development of the plow and all the various and now we've got combines and those combines are driven by GPS. Those farms got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and what that enabled was people to live in a city where they could not grow food but food would still be provided for them and in the city they then had leisure to think about more technology. It, it's really intriguing to think about. But Ranky says we're limited to what's in the box. Five billion pieces sounds like it would be an unlimited number of combinations that you could build, but God understands every possible thing that could be built with those five billion pieces, and men are just sort of playing around. The Bible's clear, right? There are secret things, and to whom do they belong? They belong to the Lord himself. Here's Thomas Edison. Edison, how many, how many patents did Edison have? Anybody know? Was it 100? Think about it, what 100 patents would be. Like if I had one, I'd be pretty, I got a patent. Let me show you, I'd open my drawer. I had a guy do that once. He, he, he was a guy who lived up here, he used to attend this church on occasion. Not a believer, but he, he had in his desk drawer this, this ratchet that he had come up with that he had a US patent for. And he was proud of it and he showed it to me. That was one. Edison had over a thousand patents in his lifetime. Here's what he says, quote, I've got no imagination. I never dream. My so-called inventions already existed in the environment. I took them out. I've created nothing, nobody does. There is no such thing as an idea being brain-born. Everything comes from the outside, and the industrious person coaxes it from the environment. That's a really insightful statement. From a man with a thousand patents, you should listen to him. Ranky again, whatever technological wonders lie ahead, they're already within the periodic table, within the ground, and within the sandbox that God has given to us. Paul simply put it this way, what do we have that we have not, what? 
received. And if you did receive it, why are you boasting about it? God is the one creator. We coax out what he has put in. Number three, God has made us technological and he has commanded us to technological innovation. And this is a game changer. This will help you if you're a, a technophobe. If you tend to see the devil behind every new invention. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him, male and female. <clears throat> I'm going to keep going here. Then God said, behold, I've given to you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit of the tree yielding seed and it shall be food for you to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that creeps on the ground which have life. I have given, given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was morning and evening the sixth day. We are created, aren't we, in the image of God, who is the creator. And this gives us both our impulse. How many of you have impulse to create? There isn't a hand in here that shouldn't be up. We all have a God-bred impulse within us because we have been created in his image to create things. It might be art, it might be stories, it might be a meal, meal it might be a building, but we take pleasure, don't we, in, in doing things and organizing and, and accomplishing and creatively engaging our world. So it gives us our impulse and our ability to create. But beyond that in this text, what are we told? We're told that we are to take our creative powers that are in the image of God and we are to utilize them for ruling over the creation and subduing it. And this, of course, makes technological development necessary and a matter of obedience. God requires it. Here's Nancy Piercy. She says, quote, in Genesis, God gives us what we might call the first job description be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, to build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. You ever think about it? All that God has stored in this world, these amazing powers to accomplish things. Why, I know you all know that food does come up out of the earth, but why does it come up out of the earth? You see, again, the scriptures are clear that God causes growth. He is the one who gives life to everything. And we just tend not to think at this level about the things we encounter. Do you know that the internal combustion engine does not work unless there's fire? And you know that fire does not burn unless there's oxygen. 
And you know that there has to be some sort of fuel. And, and here we've got gas that, where is it? I, it's, it's buried in the ground. How did it get there? You can go, well, dinosaurs, flood, da, da, da. God. And we have technologies now to extricate that fuel up and out of the ground through fracking, a new technology that, that has made us at least a few years ago energy independent, right? And I know everybody's, oh, I don't want to get into it. I'm just going to leave it alone. Here's the point. God is glorified through your creativity. Whether that's in the bearing of children or the building of a home or the singing of a song that you wrote or the art that you demonstrate or the work that you perform in bringing forth crops from the earth or the work that you perform on a computer to accomplish good in this world. God is glorified in all of that. Here's Challies. Quote, God made us creative beings in his image and assigned to us a task that would require us to plumb the depths of that creativity. He knew that to fulfill our created purpose, we would need to be innovative, developing new tools and means of utilizing resources and abilities that he had given to us. In other, worlds, uh, in other words, obedience to God requires that we create technology. Whenever we express our God-given creativity by coming up with something that will help us be more fruitful, that will multiply and promote human flourishing in a way that God honors God. We act out the imago Dei, the image of God in which we were created. This is true whether or not a person is a Christian or knowingly is fulfilling God's design. To the best of my knowledge, Elon Musk does not acknowledge God, and yet Elon Musk is, uh, is a tool in God's hand to, to, to bring about technological developments that have been helpful to us in some ways. Number four, human innovation. I got to hustle. Human innovation is a gift from God in a fallen world. It's a gift from God in a fallen world. In other words, he's given us the task of exercising dominion, which necessitates problem solving and consequent technological development. And tech if I can put it this way, is, is a particularly good gift of God in a world that's trying to kill you, right? Abraham Kuyper, pastor and theologian, writes this, quote, the impulse of virtually all human activity, this is a pretty sweeping statement, the impulse of virtually all human activity is born from the urge to combat sin or its effects, why do we have police officers? Why do we have locks and keys? Wouldn't that be a great world to live in? I don't think there'll be a lock or a key in heaven. Well, the keys of heaven, I guess. Maybe, who knows? But, but you, you get the idea. We're we are always trying to ward off a world that's trying to, to kill us, a sin that's trying to, to destroy us. And so every human innovation that benefits the world is a gift from God. It's for his glory and it's in service ultimately to his people. Give me no, uh, number five. Human innovation can be used for good or evil, and this is obvious to each of you. 
man is responsible, we are, aren't we, for our use of this good gift. And Ranky gives us a fascinating illustration. He says that everything is summed up in the use of bitumen. Anybody know what bitumen is? It's tar. You can sum it all up in tar. He says, you can go to the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, and you can see that Noah there is building an ark. That's technology. That's development. Before that, they floated downriver on logs, I guess. I don't know. Here's the thing. The ark, it had never rained. There was need for new technology. God was going to deliver the day through this ark, and here is this massive shipbuilding progress, and Noah, in building it, covered the thing in what? In tar so that it would float. That was technological development and all of it for the salvation of men. On the other hand, there's the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And he points out that this city tower, this complex was built really as a utopia for men. This was technology. We are going to elevate ourselves up and above any floodwaters. We're going to elevate ourselves up into heaven. We will take heaven by storm. We don't need God. We can be independent of him. This was an edifice, if you will, to human rebellion. And it was a global religious epicenter. And the tower was not merely, if you think about it, a a piece of nice architecture for everybody to look at. Architecture has meaning, doesn't it? You think about all of those uh, cathedrals that were built in the Middle Ages on the back of sinners paying indulgences. Some of them took upwards of seven, think about it, 700 plus years to build. Generation after generation after generation huge towering spires and stained glass and everything was directed to say God is exalted, God is higher than we are, God is to be worshipped. It had all kinds of meaning. You remember that they built a platform for for Ezra to, to read the word of God and to declare it before the people. So in the Middle Ages, where did they put pulpits? Do you remember? Have you seen it? The spiral staircase that goes up to an ascended pulpit, that wasn't to make John Calvin look great. It was so that the people could hear the word of God from on high because the word of God should be regarded. You think about the Space Needle in Seattle. It was revealed in uh, 1962 at the World Fair. What was the message of the Space Needle? Come to Seattle. It was an age of hope, wasn't it? What happened around there? The moon landing, right? We've got one, one small step for mankind, one giant step or leap for mankind. Uh, no, however that went. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This was an age of hope, and here was this, this edifice. It had meaning behind it. You think about uh, why was it that the, the bombers on 9-11 wanted to hit the White House or, or wanted to hit the Pentagon or wanted to hit the, the World Trade Center in New York. Why? Because all of those things are a show of America's strength. Well, that's the way this Tower of Babel was. It was, a, it was making a statement. 
They held it together with tar. You see, the use of technology, we're responsible for it. We can invent planes that take us places. We can invent, with, with the invention of planes, we also invent plane crashes. We also invent 9-11. You get the idea. I'm going to roll through these. We're just going to write them down. You ready? Number six, God regulates and rules over the advancement of technology and all of its uses. You, you want to read this passage. Look at Isaiah chapter 54, 16, and 17. What you'll find in that text is that God creates weapons, God creates the warrior who wields those weapons, and God creates the outcome of the warrior who wields the weapons. And, and, and so God is sovereign over everything. That's the point. He sets the boundaries of our technology. He releases uh, new technology to our understanding through invention uh, as he sees fit. 54, 16, and 17. All technology, number seven, is the servant of God in the end. And here you can write down Isaiah 28, 23 to 29. Another wonderful text where Isaiah writes, God is speaking and he talks about the farmer. And he says, how does the farmer know how to do what he does? How does he know to rotate his crops? How does he know to plow only in certain places? How does he know that, that when he threshes, that he should thresh one with corn one way and, and wheat another? How does the farmer manage uh, all of those rotations of crops and planting ground cover so that soil and nutrients are, he's talking technologically there. And in the end, he says the farmer knows all of that and there's no, no statement made in that passage about whether believer or unbeliever. This is just the farmer. The farmer knows all of that because God reveals it to him. And we have a tendency to think, oh, then he must pray to God and acknowledge, no. God is good to the elect, and he is good what? To the evil. God makes the sun to rise on both, the rain to fall on both. And God, God is the one who ultimately gets all the glory, says verse 29, for all that the farmer is able to do. Just an echo of Romans 11:36. All things, including tech, are from him, through him, and to him. To God be the glory forever. Number eight, God alone is to be trusted. And I was going to take you to 1 Samuel 17, where we see David and Goliath, which is an interesting illustration when it comes to technology, because who had the tech? Who had the armor? Who had the large spear? Who had all of that? In fact, Saul tries to outfit little David with all of his tech. David says, I can't move in this stuff. Take it off. This guy over there with all the technology, all the muscle, all the height, all the experience made a fatal error, and that is he taunted the armies of the living God. He's nothing but an uncircumcised Philistine. I will wipe him out. And David takes his little antiquated technology of a sling with a a few stones, and don't anybody get lured into the idea that, you know, those stones were 
to represent love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. No, those stones David picked up because he thought he might miss with the first one and he needed to be ready to reload. That's all. That stone doesn't hit Goliath in the shoulder and give him a flesh wound. That stone hits him right here between the eyes and drops him. What's the point? The point is the battle belongs to the Lord. And it is God who, you, who rules in this universe. So if you're one of those people who is panicked about China getting ahead of us in the arms race, if you were living in a constant state of anxiety because somebody has more horses and more chariots than we do, settle in, my friend. You have a God who's bigger than Putin. You really do. And chance has nothing to do with nothing. And we do not put our trust in chariots or in Elon Musk or in any president. Number nine, all innovation this is our final one, should fix our awe and thanks on the creator. I don't know if you've thought about that. Usually I think we tend to think that technology's primary purpose is to make our life easier, more convenient. All technology, rightfully used, should fix our awe on God 